Well, obviously a very fitting song considering what we're talking about today as we wrap up our series, Doctrine for the Day-to-Day, and uh, the last area of very practical theology, doctrine, that we're talking about today is ecclesiology, ecclesiology, the study of the church. And ecclesiology is taken from ecclesia, which is where we really get our word, church, and ecclesia means the called out ones, the called out ones, not the perfect ones. And that's very important to understand and to establish. Uh, When we're talking about the church and the called out ones, we're not at all talking about the perfect ones. And the reason for that is because there's no such thing as the perfect church or a perfect church because every church is full of imperfect people. Can I get an amen to that? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Every church is full of imperfect people. And there is no church that would be in any way close to being perfect And if there were, it would be spoiled the moment people came into it. So there's there's no such thing as a perfect church because there's no such thing as a perfect person. We need to remember that. Um, We have a tendency, I think, to act as if that's not true sometimes. And I think many people uh, believe that like a magic unicorn or like that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow... If they look long enough and hard enough, well, they might actually find the perfect church. That's certainly how some people act because they just seem to keep looking and keep looking and wandering, just waiting for that magical perfect church to come. Uh, You know, I've had many conversations with people that have uh, been honest enough to say, yeah, I'm not really going to church anymore. Oh, really? Why is that? Well, I, I just haven't quite found the right church. You've probably heard that too. Yeah, I, I just, I've tried a bunch of different churches. None of them seem to fit. Hmm. How about that? Right? Um, they, they are looking for that perfect church, and it's a mirage. They just they wish they could find it. They wish it were so. But, but like many things in life, just wishing something to be so doesn't make it so. And wishing that there really was a perfect church out there for you isn't going to just make it happen. It's not going to make it reality. And for a lot of people that do go to church and they, they try to find the right church for themselves, every time they get uh, another dose of church reality... You know, and something uh, imperfect happens, which inevitably it will. It's going to. Every time that you are part of anything with people, there's going to be something imperfect that happens, especially, especially when it comes to church because we're all gathering together and we're all broken and we're all flawed and we're all fallen. So it's going to happen. So for some people... When they come to church and they get a dose of church reality and that imperfect thing inevitably happens, rather than just dealing with it and accepting it and understanding this is just part of it and going forward, rather than doing that, what happens? They bail. They bail out. Or 
maybe they don't bail out from church completely, but they start the great church search all over again to find that, that perfect church that just <laughs> it doesn't exist. That's un- unfortunately how so many people relate to the church. And that's what describes and defines so many people's experience with church. Maybe that's been your experience at some point. Maybe you can identify with that. Um, I think probably to some extent we've all been there at some point, uh, and it's not a good place to be. Bad experiences happen. Bad experiences happen in life all the time, don't they? I mean, uh, we sometimes have bad experiences with food, but we don't just stop eating. We have problems with our cars, but we don't stop driving. That doesn't happen. We deal with it. We fix the issue. We keep going. Right? Um, That's how it should be with church. We need to understand the church isn't perfect. The church is full of problems because it's full of people with problems. The church is going to be an example of brokenness because the church is people. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's full of people that are broken. So it's going to happen. Yet, church hopping or church quitting is such a pattern for some people, their personal theme song could and should be U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. I mean, that just describes many, many people as it relates to the church. And if they're looking for perfection with anything people are part of, then yeah, they're, they're never, ever going to find what they're looking for. And what a miserable place to be. What a miserable place to be. If you're looking for perfect with anything people are part of, you're never going to find what you're looking for. And that applies to the church as well. If you're looking for perfect, you're not going to find it. It applies to the church. That's, just, that's reality, this side of eternity. It's just reality. It's the way it is. But wait... There's more. There's more than meets the eye to the church. It's not just problems. It's not just brokenness. It's not just flaws and example after example of fallenness. It's not just weakness. Those things are there, sure, but there's more than meets the eye when it comes to the church. The church is super flawed, absolutely. I'll be the first to say, That's true. I'll I'll raise my hand and say I resemble that remark. The church is super flawed, yes, but it's also supernaturally effective. The church has great weakness, yes, absolutely. A million examples of that. The church has great weakness, but it also has God's unlimited power. The church isn't perfect, but it's built on a perfect Savior. And He, our perfect Savior, is a never-changing, indestructible foundation. That's the good news for us today. That's why it's still worth it to be part of the church. It's not because of the people 
that are going to let you down. It's not because you're going to let them down. That's all true. It's because of what the church is built on, what the foundation of the church is, and it's none other than our perfect Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our indestructible, never-changing foundation. And I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. We're going to see a little bit about this foundation. We're going to see what exactly the church was built on, what it continues to be built on, and why that makes the church still work, no matter what. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Verse 13 says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Speaking, of course, of himself. They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you. So he hears that, says, okay, all right. You, what about you? But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? That, by the way, is the question posed to every single one of us. Every single person, every human being is going to have to at some point square with that question. They're going to have to come to terms with that. They're going to have to answer that for themselves. Who do I say Jesus is? Who do I really believe He is? It's a question that's out there for everyone. And I hope, I sincerely hope that you here today have answered that question the way Peter answers it. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. By him saying that, he was recognizing that Jesus was the Savior, the only Savior, the one promised and prophesied and hoped for and looked for, that he was that. He was that wonderful, unique exclusive Savior, and he was recognizing his divinity, his deity, the fact that he is absolutely God, just like the Father is. We've talked about that the last several weeks, right, in our studies in this series. He was recognizing that. He's saying, what I believe, what I know to be true, Jesus, I I don't know really where everybody else is getting this stuff, and I don't really care, because what I know is that you are the promised deliverer not just of Israel, but of all mankind. And I believe you are the incarnate deity. You are God in the flesh. I'm looking at my Creator, and I'm looking at my Savior when I talk to you. That's what I know to be true. That's how He answered it. And what a right answer that was. And I hope that's your answer too. That question that that has been over your life, just as it's over every person's life. I hope that's your answer too. Jesus, you are the only Savior. You are God come to me. You're God come in the flesh. You are Emmanuel, God with us, and you're the only hope I have. Verse 17, Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon. That's in the Hebrew, Simeon. That means one who hears. Blessed are you, Simon, or Simeon, the one who hears, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. 
We talked about that last week, that no one really comes to Christ. No one really is able to embrace salvation unless they were they're drawn to Jesus by the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus here is saying that to Peter. You're, you're recognizing the reality about me. You're recognizing and believing the truth about me, not because someone told you, but because my Father actually revealed this to you supernaturally. So you are blessed because of that. Verse 18, And I also say to you, and this is the key verse, by the way, for, for what we're talking about today. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and in the Greek that's Petros, and that means a stone. It's a stone, but it's a smaller, movable stone. It's more of a, like a shifting stone, easy, easily moved. Petros. And on this rock, and that's Petra, that means an immovable boulder. So there's two different things that Jesus is doing here. He's drawing attention to the fact that, that he sees great potential in Peter. He sees strength in Peter. And there's, there's flashes of that in Peter's life. Up to this point, there's been flashes of strength, flashes of, of greatness, flashes of getting it. He's done that. And then there's been flashes of incredible like jaw-dropping weakness where you're like, really, Peter? In fact, one of those ep- uh, examples is going to come up in the same dialogue here. Because just, just a little bit later in this conversation, um, as Jesus reveals His whole purpose, He reminds them of His whole purpose in being here and the fact that they're very soon going to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be delivered up. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. He's going to rise again. Peter, who at this moment recognized the divinity and the, the exclusive nature of Jesus as Savior, Yay, Peter, win, you know, score one for Peter, right? In almost the same breath, when he hears Jesus saying, I'm going to go die, Peter says, I don't think so. I'm not going to let you do that. No, not if I have anything to say about it. Jesus, no, you're not going to do that. In other words, I forbid you from going to do what you say you're going to go do. (laughs) So, This name that Jesus gave for Peter, Petros, movable stone, in contrast to the immovable rock, Petra, that Jesus says he's going to build his church on, that's something we've got to pay attention to. Because as you see, if you're looking along with me and following along in verse 18 here, after he says, you're Petros, you're Peter, you're a stone, but you're a smaller, movable one. On this Petra, this immovable boulder, on that I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it, he says. It, it's so important for us to understand why he switched from the masculine to the feminine. The, the, the masculine Petros to the feminine Petra. It, it's, so, it's so important to note that. Because... If, like the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, if they say, uh, if what they say is true, that it's Peter himself that Jesus said he was going to build the church on, that, that Peter was going to be the cornerstone, that all the church was built on, and that he was the first pope, and he was established as the rock that the church was going to be built on. 
And then every other pope after him in his succession had this incredible, powerful authority. That's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches because of this statement. If that's true, then Jesus would have called Peter Petra. He would have said, you, you, yes, you, Peter, are this great boulder of a person. You're this immovable rock. And I'm going to build my church on you. You are the foundation. That's not what he was saying at all. He said, you are Peter. You are a stone. You have potential for strength, and I am going to use you. But it's not on you, this little stone, that I'm going to build my church. It's rather, it's on the immovable boulder, the Petra of the statement that you gave on who I am, on the truth and reality of who I am and what you recognize. It's on the fact that you, Peter, said that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And you're right, I am. And on that Petra, that immovable boulder, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And that's why the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Because, let's face it, the gates of Hades could very easily and and does very easily overpower any human, any person. But if, if the church is built on something beyond a person, if it's built on the unchanging, immovable, immeasurable, powerful reality of who and what Jesus is, then nothing can shake it. Nothing can shake it. And that's exactly what's going on here. That's what Jesus is saying. Peter, I'm glad you recognized that. You saw the reality of who I am. That my Father revealed that to you. And it's on that revelation, that reality, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And you're going to be a part of it, little stone. You're going to be a part of it, but you're not the foundation of it. I will build my church. Isn't it good to know, church, that Jesus is the one that builds this church? Isn't that good to know? That it's not up to you to do that? It's up to you to, to be a part of it and to be used by the builder as an instrument to, to partner with him in that building. But the building itself, that's what he does. It's not up to, to us. It's not, it's not dependent on any one person. No pastor can or should build the church. And I am so grateful that, that I don't have to do that, that Jesus is the one that builds this church. And then I'm just used by him uh, as part of that. What a good, what a good and, and encouraging thought that is. So Jesus says, I will build my church. And because I'm the one that's going to build it, and I'm building it on the reality of who I am, because of that, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And here's, here's something else I just want to make sure you understand. We, we've got to be clear on this because I think many times we have the wrong image when we hear this statement. We think of this the wrong way. Gates, gates or doorways, uh, but think think like the big gates of of a stronghold, a fortress, a castle. Gates aren't offensive. They're defensive, right? The gate of, of a castle or a fortress, it's meant to keep an invading army out. Gates don't come off their hinges and go attack the army. They keep an attacking army out. 
So gates are defensive. So it's not like the gates of Hades that Jesus is talking about here are somehow marching against the church, attacking it. What Jesus is saying is that the gates of Hades, or the doorway of death, which is uh, the literal meaning of this phrase, the gates of Hades, that's, that's literally what he's saying there. He's saying that the, the doorway of, of death, and by extension, the reality and the power of death, won't be enough to keep the church from being built. It's not going to be enough that death will not be able to stop the church being established, the church being built uh, by Him. Why? Because He will overcome death by His resurrection. That's what the rest of this, this passage is about here in Matthew 16. It's actually um, the, the main context of the whole passage. It's, it's what made Peter's answer and confession so powerful and accurate by recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It's recognizing that death itself can't can overpower Him. That Jesus is the one who has authority over death, which He demonstrated by His resurrection. And He said, I, I'm, I'm going to, later in this passage, He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered up, I'm going to die, but I will rise again. And because of that, because of that awesome reality, the resurrection the gates of Hades, the realm of death, the reality and the power of death, it would not be enough to keep the church from being built. Because the one building it was the resurrected Savior. And by connection, and this is where it gets really good for us, by connection, Jesus is also saying that the power of death and the power of darkness will never be enough, ever, to keep the church from continuing to be built, from continuing uh, to be effective going forward. And that's really, really good news for us because practically, practically speaking, that means that not even death can keep the church, which you are a part of, if you're in Christ, not even death can keep it from being effectively used by Christ. And if that's the case, if not even death, can keep the church from going forward, if not even death can keep the church from being effectively used by Christ, then all the other things that come against it, all the pressure from the outside coming in on us, all the, the problems on the inside, which are many, right? Let's just be honest about that. We're really good at messing things up ourselves. We're really good about causing uh, ourselves problems. We don't even need all the pressure from outside. We do a lot on our own. But, but if, if death can't even keep the church from going forward, then none of that pressure from outside, none of the problems from inside are going to be enough to contain it or kill it. Ever. Ever. The church keeps going. The church keeps marching on triumphantly, victoriously. And that's good news. That's good news. That's why the church still works, despite all of its issues. And that's why it always will. I want to also draw your attention to four specific areas, four pillars, as it were, uh, that keep Christ's church stable and strong. Four pillars, four, 
four key areas that are essential for the church's health and effectiveness. And, and as Jesus builds His church, He has very intentionally made sure these four pillars are part of that. Keeping the church strong. Keeping it stable. The first of those four pillars that we're going to look at is love. Love. This is the first thing that is absolutely essential for the church's health, for its effectiveness. Love. In John 13, 34-35, Jesus says this to His disciples, and this is very, very close to the cross. He's giving kind of last words, last instructions, and He says this, I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, which is with agape love, unlimited Unconditional love. Never-ending, supernaturally-powered love. That's the measure of the love that He's saying, I want you to have for one another. That's our standard. It's not my love for you and your love for me. That's not what our standard is to be. Our standard is the love that Jesus has for us. So He says, love one another just as I have loved you. In the same way I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, by your loving one another that way, by loving one another the way I have loved you, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Second important pillar that's absolutely essential for the health and the the strength and the effectiveness of the church is unity. Love and now unity. John 17, 21-23, in His incredible prayer uh, that he, he gives to the Father with His disciples standing around Him, He says this, May they all, not just the disciples there, right with Him, the original disciples, but all who believe on the message of the Gospel because of the disciples' witness and just that that thread all through time, all through history, which includes us. So all believers is what Jesus is praying for now. And He says, May they all be one, as You, Father, are in Me and I am in You. That's, that's the pattern. That's, again, the measure of our unity. The very unity that's within the Trinity. May they all be one, as You, Father, are in Me and I am in You. May they also be in us, so that, here's the the purpose of what he's praying for, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Wow, do you think unity is important to Jesus? With the amount of times he said this in just <laughs> just a, a brief little little bit of time, a couple sentences, 
oneness. May they all be one. May they be completely one. As you are in me and I am in you, may they be one. May they be one. So that the world may know and believe you sent me and love them even as you loved me. See, with love and unity together, what that shows us, what that tells us, is that the unbelieving world is never going to be impressed or convicted by how many amazing programs we have. They're never going to be moved to repent of their their sin because our music is just so amazing. They're never going to be so overcome with their need for the Savior by just what a great, powerful message that was that the pastor gave. All those things are good. Programs that we have in ministry are good. Activities that we do as a church and that we offer are good and needed and healthy. Our music should be as good as we can possibly make it. We should do it with excellence. Like we do everything, we should pursue excellence in everything we do. The message, the music, our, our specific ministries, all that should be done with excellence and, and it should be great and we should have as many of them as we can um, fund and staff and all of that. But listen to me, church. Please listen to me. The thing about the church that's going to make those outside of the church take notice of the church, it's our love and our unity. If we have love for one another and we are unified together, that's going to speak volumes to the people outside of the church because they don't have that. They have the opposite of love. They have artificial love. They have manufactured love. They have self-focused love. And they certainly don't have unity. They have division. Everywhere you look in the world, everywhere you look in culture, everywhere you look in society, it's fragmented, it's broken, it's divided. Every single aspect of society is divided and broken. So if they see in us something so starkly different from they have every second of their lives, they will not be able to help but take notice and want to know what that's all about. So it's all about our love for one another and our unity together that our Savior will use to bring other people to Himself. All that other stuff is truly secondary. It really is. That the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That leads us to the third pillar. The third pillar that Jesus has intentionally placed in His church that He is building. And that's the pillar of evangelism. So we've got love, we've got unity, and as we are loving one another and as we are unified together, we're supposed to go out and proclaim that love and that unity and the truth behind it. Evangelism. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5.18-20 says. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20. The Apostle Paul says, All this is from God, who 
through Christ, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's grace. And entrusting to us, to you and me, the message of reconciliation. That's the gospel. The message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Therefore, this is the, the natural progression of that. Knowing we're ambassadors, representing and speaking for Christ, here's what we do. We implore you, we implore the unbeliever, the lost. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So when we are, are supernaturally reconciled, by Jesus Christ, we're brought to Him. We're, we're brought to new life. We are reconciled. Then we're given that ministry and message of reconciliation. And God wants us to go out and be the ambassadors of reconciliation, bringing other people to the reconciliation we've received. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be part of the church. The church must, must be an institution of evangelism. We have to be that. We have to go out and and take this ambassadorship that we have seriously. And that's what we're called to do. Last but not least, the fourth pillar that's part of this incredible building, not building as in physical location, but this building that Jesus has built, this awesome body called the church. The fourth pillar, work. Work. And that's not not a bad word. Work, Ephesians four eleven through thirteen, and I'm going to share this this particular passage. I'm going to read from the NLT, the New Living Translation, because I love how clear it expresses what exactly Paul was trying to convey. Verse eleven. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church: the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people. Other translations say the saints. That's you guys. Those that are not the pastors and teachers. See, there's a difference in role. There's a difference in relationship. He gave these lists of of these leaders and and, uh, the, the people that are Um, shepherding and overseeing the church. And he says their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So it's my job as pastor-teacher and the other pastor-teachers to come alongside you to equip you, to resource you, to empower you, and to shepherd you, you, in the work of the ministry, in the carrying out of the ministry, in the building up of this local assembly. 
That's how we work together. It's not supposed to be that the pastor talks about the work and then goes and does all the work too. It's not supposed to be that the the church body, the people, say, oh, well, we've got paid staff, so in terms of any work of the ministry, the building up of the body, anything like that that needs to get done, that's why we have a paid staff. So we should just sit back and let them do it and, and cheer them on and give them a paycheck. See, that's unfortunately the very prevalent mindset that has crept into especially the American church, where we've made the church, and particularly the church leaders, the church staff, vocational pastors, we've made it very much like a corporation, where they're just paid workers that are expected to, you know, to do the actual labor of of the work of the ministry, of building up that that ministry and making it go forward. Rather, the Bible is very clear here. Jesus is, is very clear in what His intention was as Paul communicates it, that He gave this role, the pastor, to the church to pour into you the church body to allow you and to, to equip you and resource you and encourage you so that you can actually be what God uses to build up His church. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it's supposed to function. And verse 13 tells us, this will continue, this, this order, this program, this plan, this strategy, this blueprint, if you will, for building up the body, This will continue until we all come to such unity. There's that word again. Until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. That's how long this is going to continue this way. We empower you. We equip you. We're there alongside you. And you are actually carrying out the work of the ministry. And we keep that process going really until God calls us home. Until we reach that perfect standard of of unity and knowledge of the Lord and in our faith. And that standard is the complete fullness of Christ, which we're not going to attain to really until we're in glory with Him. And here's what all that tells me. The fact that we're to be pursuing love one for another. The fact that we're to be pursuing unity together. The fact that together we're to be working passionately, consistently in evangelism. Carrying out the message of reconciliation. And the fact that we're to be working together like we just saw. All of that tells me something. And I think it should tell you something, and I hope it does. And that's this. The Christian walk was never meant to be a solo journey. The Christian walk was never meant to be a solo journey. I can't can't effectively, consistently walk the Christian walk on on my own, by myself. I just can't do it. And you can't either. We need each other. I need to come alongside you and say, here, brother, sister, let me walk with you. 
You need to come alongside me and say the same. And if we're all doing that together in all these areas, in the areas of love, in the areas of unity, in the areas of evangelism, in the areas of working in the church, what a beautiful body and bride we will be. The Christian walk was never meant to be a solo journey. And the reason so many people fall in their Christian walk, why, why so many people say, you know what, this isn't worth it, and they abandon their Christian walk, the reason why is because there wasn't anyone else to walk alongside of them. And we cannot let that continue to happen. We have far too many casualties as it is. Hebrews 10, 24-25. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says this, And let us consider, let's think about, let's strategize. That's what he's saying here, the author. Let's consider how to stir up one another. The, the literal word here is where we get the word agitator. It's the idea of, of what we see in our washing machines. You know, the things that... that spins and makes the washing machine go, that's, that's the image of, that's behind this word that the author of Hebrews in this text that he used here when, when we see in our English here, stir up, it's agitate. But it's not agitate in a bad way. You know, like, like your brothers or sisters agitate you, like, you know, um, teenagers, your parents, you know, we just, we, we agitate you, we're really good at that, right? Um, it's agitate in a good way. Agitate towards something good. Stir up, agitate. Some translations even say provoke, but it's in a good sense. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. To love and good works. That's what we're to stir one another up toward. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but in contrast, encouraging one another. See, there's the third time one another or together has been used just since we started these verses. One another, together, one another. Encouraging one another and all the more, so not neglecting to meet together, not neglecting to encourage one another, but rather all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day is capitalized. That's the day of Christ, the second coming of our Savior. So as we see His second coming drawing near, which I don't know about you, but I see that day drawing near. And hallelujah for it. But that means, church, we've got a lot of work still to do. And so as we see the day, the day of our Lord, our Savior drawing near, we need to come together even more. Encourage one another even more. Stir up one another to love and good works even more. That's the calling that's on us as the church. And that is so important and so vital that a Christian not committed to the church is a contradiction. A Christian not committed to the church is a contradiction in terms and it's a contradiction in life. Because you can't be part of Christ, but not part of His body, which the church is. It's not going to work. If you're part of Christ, you're going to be part of His body, the church, warts and all. 
It's just, it's an absolute necessity. Here's what, here's what all this means. The church definitely has lots of blemishes. But despite that, it's still beautiful. Why is it still beautiful? Because it's the body and bride of Christ. It's still what He uses to bring people to Himself. It's still what He equips and helps to be the salt and the light in this corrupt and dark world. Church, the church still works. It still has great worth. And it's still worth staying with. Do you agree with that? I hope so. Our work's not done. And we need each other. Now more than ever. So let's get out there and do it. Let's go do it. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the church. Thank you for, through your son Jesus, not just saving us, but placing us into his body. Placing us into the church that he started building and continues to build. Thank you that it's he who builds it. It's not any one person. We're all little stones that are used by the cornerstone, the great immovable boulder that Jesus is and the reality of who he is. It's the truth and the power and the reality of who Jesus is and what he is that the church has to be built on. If it's built on anything less, it's going to crumble. So, Father, help us to make sure that we're building on nothing else but Jesus. He is the church's one and only foundation. May that be true of us here. May we have in us and about us as markers, as defining characteristic, those four essential pillars that we talked about today. May may we be marked by love for one another, the kind of love Jesus has for us. May we be marked by unity one with another so that the world may know and believe that Jesus really is who He says He is. May we be passionate about evangelism, carrying out that message of reconciliation that we have received and believed. And may we be faithful and diligent in the work of the ministry, doing it the right way, the right order that Jesus Himself established. Help us in all of these things, I pray, by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Thank You that we don't have to do it alone, and may we not do that. May we walk together in all of this. For Your glory, for Your honor, in accordance with Your perfect plan. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.